Welcome to my PhD, the newest show of the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Network. My PhD is a show for you, by you, where students at any level can tell us about the amazing science that they are working on and other interesting experiences while doing their PhD. If you're at Hopkins, look out in your email for a link to the Google form to sign up to record your own personal podcast. If you're not at Hopkins, we want to hear from you too. Find the link to sign up at our website, hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com, or in the description of this episode. I am your host, Gustavo Carrizo, and I am joined today by my guest, Marisa Mitchell-Flack. Marisa is a fourth-year PhD student from the immunology program at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and she's conducting her PhD project in Dr. Drew Pardot's lab, studying the role of AMPA receptors in T-cells. Marisa is not only working in a very exciting research project that we are going to hear more about today, she's as well the leader of diversity, equity, and inclusion, a position created last year in the Immunology Graduate Program. We are very happy to have you, Marisa, today, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so let's start from the very beginning. And uh, can you tell us about yourself and like, where are you from? And just to know you a little bit about how also you started your PhD and how you make it into Baltimore and, and Hopkins. Okay, yeah, great. Uh, so I was born and raised in Frederick, Maryland. It's about an hour uh, west of Baltimore. Uh, I attended a uh, small liberal arts college called Hood College, also in Frederick, uh, where I studied biology. And, you know, I did research in undergrad, but I wasn't really sure with my degree whether I wanted to stay in research or go to medicine. And so I kind of wasn't at this point when I graduated, wasn't very clear. So I started working as a technician. And I actually ended up working as a technician for almost six years. Uh, and so when I, uh, after about six years, I kind of made this decision that I wanted to apply for graduate school. And when I applied, I decided that uh, the program at Hopkins was the best fit for me. So that's why I'm here. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear that um, after graduating, you you know, you went for to work for so many, many years. Actually, what, you know, made you to the say, okay, now I will change my life and I will just go for a PhD. Well, we all know that um, it's a commitment and going through that process, right? Um, what are the things that at that point made you say, okay, I want to pursue this? And what are the things that maybe you have to kind of like, I mean, I don't want to say sacrifice, but make that change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was definitely not an easy choice to make uh, to kind of, you know, stop my progress as a technician working my way up and taking a large pay cut to go back to graduate school for, you know, however many years, five plus years. Um, it was a decision that took time. I kind of went through this journey where I started as a technician. I worked at a CRO uh, for a year and, you know, I kind of hated it, to be honest, um, because I was literally doing the exact same assay every single day. Uh, and it made me sort of hate science in a way. And I kind of thought that this was what this my life in research would be would be, you know, just doing the same experiments, doing the same experiments that people told me to do. But, you know, I was also earning a living uh, to support my family. And so I was working as a tech for several years. And it was only uh, when I had an experience working at a small biotech company where I met a lot of postdocs who were, uh, you know, had studied immunology that I was inspired by their experiences to consider it going back to school um, for a career in immunology. And so uh, it was through those experiences that I kind of came to this decision. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I just want to, to ask you at that point when you were hating science and, and all of that, while you were working, did you um, find, do you have a, that moment like a mentor or someone that, you know, like advise you uh, and also, you know, support that decision because, you know, you also went for a pay cut and there are so many things that were playing at the time. Yeah, if you had someone. Yeah, so I definitely think that I've, I'm very blessed to have a lot of people in my life that have supported me through this process of, you know, deciding to go to grad school somewhat later. Um, I'm very lucky that my husband has never once uh, questioned picking up his entire life and moving uh, for my studies. I really just, when I was studying for the GRE, when I was writing those applications, when I was doing all of this work as somebody who hadn't been in school in so long, uh, he was my cheerleader, 100%. He never for one second, um, you know, doubted that this was the right path for me and then, you know, in his support for me. So I feel very lucky that we're really partners in life and that uh, he, you know, who he also is a, is a doctor and went through this process of becoming a doctor. So I think he kind of understands the grueling aspects of the career choices that we have made. Um, but it was definitely his support that helped me kind of solidify the decision to apply. Um, but in terms of mentors, I, again, those postdocs that I work with, and they're, we're still very close friends from this company, they really took me under their wing and showed me a lot about what a project, a scientific project really is, not just doing experiments, not just pumping out data, but, you know, coming up with a scientific question, how do you answer that question? How do you approach that? How do you analyze these things? Um, and it was really through their guidance and their support that I kind of thought that a career uh which included going back to grad school was a good fit for me. Yeah, that's great. And I'm really happy to hear that you have that support from your husband because, you know, support to women in science is really important. And so really happy that, that you have that. Um, I mean, I could talk for hours about, you know, your personal you <laughs> story, <too>. but um, <laughs> why, why not? So you're working in Drew's lab and, you know, he's very well known for his contribution in cancer immunotherapy and and now I would like to know um, if you can tell us a little bit more as well as your, your PhD project, because I am really curious to hear about, you know, AMPA receptors because they are expressing neurons. So starting to talk about those in, in, in immune cells, it's really exciting. So can you uh, tell us about your project? And, and oh, yeah, that? absolutely. So, yeah, like you mentioned, Drew's lab is really focused on cancer immunotherapy. Um, and so my project's kind of unique in that way, that it's a little bit more on the basic science side. And so... Um, the project really developed from trying to understand mechanisms of peripheral tolerance. And we know that peripheral tolerance is really relevant to immunotherapy because with cancer immunotherapy, you want to increase the effector T cell response, but you also want to inhibit or diminish um, sort of tolerogenic responses, including regulatory T cells and whatnot. Um, so, through these studies, uh, a postdoc, a former postdoc in Drew's lab, identified uh, neuritin, this protein as highly differentially expressed um, in energic T cells. And it actually, through you know many years of studying the role of neuritin, they found that it also plays a role in regulatory T cell development and function. And as you mentioned, it's very interesting because neuritin is also one of these proteins that had never been identified to play a role in the immune system. It actually was known to be expressed in neurons. So when we went back to the neuroscience literature to look into, you know, how is neuritin exerting these functions in T cells, um, we found that neuritin is also associated with this large amperoceptor complex. And so the amperoceptor is an ion channel that's found in neurons. Um, 
and really changes in, in neurons membrane potential because it fluxes, you know, various ions and whatnot. But now my project is really just trying to identify a little bit more about what is the role of this AMP receptor doing in T cells. And I specifically focus on the role in CD4 T cells, um, kind of narrowing down a little bit to regulatory T cells um, and studying a lot of uh, the role in autoimmune disease models. You know, because you, you mentioned like APA receptors, they, they are really important, like membrane potential for neurons. And um, is there is something known about what, you know, in, the, in this sense, going in the same way, like of potential? Um, because, um, for, for example, the mitochondria, right, it has a membrane potential that it needs to maintain between, you know, the, the two sides of the, of the membrane. And when this kind of like potential is perturbed, it's really drives a mechanism of, for example, autophagy. And it's like a signal for the, you know, for the cells to actually have to, um, they're saying that the mitochondria is not healthy, but there are other many, you know, like um, pathways that are being activated by, by these changes. Do you know in this case, because we are talking about, you know, the cell membrane, um, if there is any like studies or something that's going in that direction? Yeah. So, you know, I would say that, you know, a lot of my previous experience for my last lab was in a sort of calcium lab. And in terms of calcium, which is an ion that we all know is very important in, in terms of T cell function, um, there's a little bit of controversy actually about whether membrane potential can impact voltage sensitive channels on T cells. Um, so I would say that in general, in terms of membrane potential changes, it's still a little bit murky and there isn't a, a, a large consensus about the role of membrane potential in, in T cells and those changes, as we know in neurons, you know, it's driving some sort of, you know, synapse, but, um, in, in terms of an action potential, but in terms of T cells, I, I'm not sure that it's actually really well known. So we're kind, yeah. of, kind of just evaluating somewhat blind about the role of the AMP receptor, um, but it does also flux calcium. And so we certainly believe that calcium could play a role there too. So yes, yeah. very interesting. And you, you said you are now focusing on autoimmune disease, but I mean, your lab has a huge experience in, in cancer. And so I would assume that you're also trying a few things there. Um, Oh, yeah. So absolutely. I, I don't think you can work in Drew's lab and not uh, <laughs> you know, do any of these tumor models. So definitely doing uh, colon cancer models and melanoma models in our mice. Um, so we definitely are still evaluating that role. Um, and it actually does seem to more or less match the phenotype we see in autoimmunity, where uh, the mice that are deficient in the AMP receptor, specifically in T cells, are protected from developing severe uh, autoimmune disease, but it does seem that they have, when we do a tumor model, larger tumor burden, likely because their T cells either aren't getting there, or aren't functioning as well without the receptor. Um, that's that's really interesting. And like, do you know, like, it is possible to modulate these AMPA receptors as you would do in in the brain, where you can target these cells, modulating AMPA receptors. Is there something? And you're thinking about more in the future. I mean, I don't know now when your project is going to end and, you know, what, is, what are your plans, but thinking more about applications in general. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there are a couple of receptor inhibitors that are, that are FDA approved, I think, in epilepsy. So, of course, patients that would have higher levels of receptors, higher action potentials, they're having issues with seizures and epilepsy. But uh, it's... You know, I don't know that there's a drug or anything that wouldn't cross the blood-brain barrier at this point, because we certainly want to, wouldn't want to do that in a normal person to inhibit AMP receptors. 
Um, but you know, you could think of it as being a cell-based therapy or, or something where you give patients, um, you know, T cells that lack the receptor or, uh, CD4, uh, regulatory T cells, um, that are, that lack the AMP receptor, it's at least so far appear to be better regulatory T cells. Mm -hmm. Um, so this could be certainly interesting for autoimmune disease patients, but definitely, I mean, it would be great if we could ever get to the point where you could, um, inhibit the AMP receptor in a context that would improve, um, patient outcomes in certain diseases. Yeah, there are certain moments of, of type of inflammation where there are immune cells that they can go to the brain and, and you can see them, you can find them there, which is, you know, very interesting um, that there, it would be definitely a crosstalk, you know, between the T cells and, and whatever is going on in the brain. Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I think that um, that's what's so cool about this project is we're really just trying to identify like the underlying basic science that's driving these mechanisms. I mean, we definitely always have a therapeutic kind of approach in mind. But I think at this point with my project, it's really just trying to understand what pathways are involved, what's happening. Um, this isn't something that's really well studied in T cells. So, um, you know, hopefully we can understand a little bit more about these intricate pathways and how this interaction happens. I think it could definitely um, be very informative. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for sharing that. And so I will take you a little bit more on the next step about, you know, once you finish your PhD and also like looking a bit, little bit behind um, to your experience in industry, like, you know, what is your goal now once you finish your PhD and, you know, where do you see yourself in terms of like transitioning from your science? Do you want to be a PI? Do you want to go back to industry as you were before? Um, yeah, what are the next steps? Yeah, you know, it's something I still think about a lot. You know, I'm in my fourth year and hopefully graduating next year, or at least the year after. Um, I wasn't sure when I went to grad school if I wanted to stay in academia or go into industry because I had experience in both um, fields. But I think at this point, I'm, I'm mostly leaning towards um, working as a scientist at an industry job. I, I don't think that uh, industry is the end of interesting research. I think that there are a lot of companies nowadays that are really uh, pumping out their own papers, really doing a lot of interesting, really cool science. Um, and I just think that also there are certain life uh, factors that contribute to my decision. I did go to grad school a bit later. I do want to have a family with my husband. Um, and I have other life goals. And I, I know that we've talked offline before about how, you know, sometimes I think that you know, scientists view life goals or, you know, maybe not as important in terms of priorities for what you want to do. But I think that, you know, maybe through my experience, I also recognize that having a life is great and having life goals is great. And so I want to do these other things too. Um, and I think that at this point, this career path is probably best suited for that. Yeah, I completely agree as well. I mean, I can resonate with the same. And I think yeah, there is a lot. There are so many companies that they are doing amazing science, and and so definitely you can you can still apply your science there. Um, because as you said, it doesn't it doesn't end in academia. Actually, we have to stop thinking about academia isolated, right? Um, so so definitely that's great. Um, and now I know that you I mean, we were talking about the other day a little bit. Um, and as I said in the introduction as well, you are involved in other extracurricular activities, and you know um, also advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and. Can you tell us also a little bit about that, you know, these initiatives that you are working on? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this position is really new to our program. And we, you know, as you know, we have a pretty small program. Usually, I think we're about 30 to max 35 students in the 
and the whole program. Um, but this position really formed um, after the summer of 2020 when we saw a lot of violence against African Americans in our you know current news. And um, I guess at that point, some students decided that you know we really want to have a position totally dedicated to these issues. And so I um, worked with another student last year as a co-leader, and now I'm um, the sole leader, uh, but really supported by a lot of great students that are really interested in making this um, something that isn't just for the year, but really lasts beyond that. And so the initiative is really that we want to, we wanted to first evaluate how our program is doing in terms of um, underrepresented groups in science. And so we first evaluated through our admissions process, uh, are we losing representation of minority students? If so, where? Um, and, you know, we're not immune. Our program is also, we have several groups which are underrepresented, um, but it does appear that it's generally from the first stage in that we're not receiving um, applications from students from these underrepresented backgrounds. So we started to kind of think about different ways uh, that we could kind of combat this issue. And one of those is that we are reestablishing our relationship with a local uh, uh, historically black college uh, called Morgan State University. Um, and we're trying to kind of facilitate this relationship where we can inform these students about immunology in general. I think a lot of students just really maybe aren't familiar with our program or just the field. And so we're working to do um, some mentorship. We've also done a seminar before for them. In addition, we're also uh, just beginning our venture into social media. <laughs> and so uh, created a Twitter and Instagram page for our um, program. And we're just hoping to kind of increase our audience so that we can maybe show what it's like to be a student in our program and maybe um, more students will become interested and um, basically broaden uh, the net so that we can have a more diverse program um, because we know that diversity, increasing diversity in our program will increase the quality of our education. So yeah. we just, yeah. it's very important. Definitely, definitely. And so for our listeners, please, uh, I will put the description so that you will, you can tell me the Instagram website um, and also the Twitter so I can I can share that. So, you know, we can also um, get our listeners to, to visit and start following the social media. That would be great. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I also agree. Um, there are so many things that we, we, we can do um, from our position. Um, and so it would be great also to, you know, to make our program more visible to them. And yeah. I think I, I want to point out a little bit about, you know, I arrived just four months ago here and, and there are so many things that you can do at Hopkins and you can get involved in, in all of those. Um, and so, you know, to everyone that is listening, like, please, you know, if you, you have passion for something, just, you know, you, I'm sure you will find a niche to, to help and to improve things. Um, and just to highlight that, um, that, you know, you, I mean, you can be focused on your science, but um, it's always in, like, to enrich your, your life in general. There are so many things happening in this environment, which I am enjoying it a lot. So now just, um, I wanted to ask you, so we, we talk about your journey and your decision process to arrive here as a PhD. Um, and I just want to make, you know, it's just a very classical question about, you know, if you go back in time and, you know, and, and you think that you would do something different. And the second question related with that is like, because you said you, know, you were in the industry and, you know, you were hating science and, but you came to the PhD to actually try to find something. Um, did you find that something that you were looking for and would you recommend other students and um, other people that is listening that maybe is in the same situation to pursue a PhD? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, uh, I don't know if I believe in fate, but I also believe that, you know, sometimes you have to go through a different journey to get somewhere. You know, I wasn't a traditional student. I didn't go right out of college, uh, right into grad school. But I also feel that I and, you know, I maybe I can only compare to myself, but I know that I was more committed and more passionate about going back to grad school because it took me, you know, six years to get there that it would have been if I was just out of college. And that's, again, that's just my experience. What I really wanted to gain from doing a PhD was I wanted to learn more about how to, you know, really orchestrate a whole scientific question and project. And how do you make these decisions? As a technician, I didn't have my own project. I was really, um, you know, cloning a lot. I was doing a lot of mouse colony maintenance. I was never necessarily in a position where I felt like I was really learning um, every part of the process. I mean, certainly there are technicians that do have their own projects and they do have this apprentice style learning, but I just didn't feel that that was my experience. And I didn't, um, I didn't get that. And I really wanted it. I realized at some point that I wasn't happy just, you know, helping do a mouse harvest or uh, doing these kind of stainings for the sake of someone else's project. I really wanted my own. I wanted to investigate these things because science is really cool and I'm really into it. And I always want to know why, how something works and figure that out. And so I followed that passion. I think that, you know, my only advice can be, you know, uh, that a support system is really important when you go to grad school. I think it, at least it makes it a lot easier when you know that you have someone or other people or your family or your friends that are very supportive of you and are there to listen to you when they don't quite understand what you're talking about, but they also want you to uh, feel better. Um, so I think that that's really important and that's a big key. I mean, it's definitely been a rough ride uh, in terms of how it feels when you're a PhD student, you can feel very isolated. You can feel a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, because it's not something where you know that you're going to come here and you're going to do four years and you're going to graduate. It's not like that. And you can definitely feel scared when your project isn't getting off the ground for the first couple of years. But I would just say uh, that perseverance is something that's really important here. And the other thing is that actually one of my mentors here at Hopkins told me uh, something that really stuck with me, and that's you know that a PhD is earned. It's not something you can just buy. And that's something that I really took to heart because I, I'm already four years in and it's something that I have worked very hard for, sacrificed a lot for, and it's something that I really want now. You know, this is something I'm passionate about um, and I'm I'm earning it every step of the way. And I think that that is so, so valuable, invaluable really uh, to me. So yeah, I guess that would be my advice. Um, you know, I mean, you you did a very conscious uh, decision to be here. It's not that suddenly, you know, and I think that the years that you've been um, doing that other experience gave you that. So thank you so much for 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 this time. I really enjoyed talking with you. And as I said, I will be hours ask, like, you know, asking you more questions. If someone wants to contact with you, I mean, can they find you in, in LinkedIn? Maybe if you want, they want to ask you things. Absolutely. I'm always uh, a big fan of random emails and random DMs on LinkedIn. So, uh, you know, if anyone wants to contact me or are interested in, I don't know, my story or anything about uh, what we're working to do with the diversity inclusion, yeah, please feel free to reach out. Great. So thank you, Marisa. And thank you for coming thank here. It was so really, much. really nice. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. 
Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. Also, check out the Google form at the link in the episode description to sign up for your own My PhD episode. I am Gustavo Carrizo. Thank you for listening.